I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. My guest this week is a stand-up comedy legend with an unmistakable sense of humor. I'm so afraid of crime because they've legalized it now. (laughs) Do you remember, and this was a while ago, but do you remember that 560-pound criminal? who was released, and it was Jojo, he was released from jail because he had asthma, so jail was bad for him. <laughs> who made up this rule? I thought that was the whole idea, was that jail was at least supposed to be a little bit bad for you. <laughs> Apparently not anymore. Apparently now it's like, sorry, got claustrophobia, can't go, wish I could, sorry. <laughs> Electric chair, no way, even a heating pad gives me a rash. <laughs> Then they let Hinkley go, and Sirhan Sirhan, the guy who shot Robert Kennedy, he's up for parole like every year now or something. Not only that, he told the parole board that he thought if Kennedy were alive today, he would speak in his favor and say, let the guy go. <laughs> what a tough break, huh? The one guy who would have supported this guy, <laughs> and he shot him. <laughs> Thank you very much. You guys have been great. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and that was Paula Poundstone from her 1989 One Night Stand special on HBO. Paula has been a singular voice in the comedy world for just about 40 years now. From her early stand-up spots on Late Night with David Letterman and The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson in the 80s, to her phenomenal stand-up specials in the 90s and beyond. It's been a career of very high highs and some seriously low lows, including her 2001 arrest that she reflects on in this conversation for the first time in a long time. These days, she is, of course, hosting her own podcast called Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone. And as you'll hear, this medium is oddly perfect for Paula and her propensity to go off on hilarious tangents as only she can. This one was such a thrill for me as I've loved her comedy since I was a kid. So here's me with Paula Poundstone. Well, I want to I want to talk about your podcast, uh, which I believe you just passed the 250 episode milestone. I think we must have started our podcast around the same time because I'm getting close to that. Um, it's called Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone. Is anybody listening? Um, we have, we I, you know I think probably like most like most podcasts because the podcasting world is very much like the economy as a whole. Which is there's the one percent yes, who make the yes, money, yes. and then there's the rest of us who are wrestling with whether or not we should still be doing it. <laughs> I, and I, I can relate to that. <laughs> yes, I fall into the latter category, sadly. Um, and in fact, part of the only reason I I still make a podcast um, is that I really uh, I love hearing from our listeners. I love hearing that you know just that. You know, just a little note or whatever or tweet or whatever saying, oh, my gosh, you guys are getting me through. Is that not the most uplifting thing? I mean, not that I need someone else to suffer so that I can feel good about myself. It's not, <laughs> but I think we're all suffering in these recent years. 
And to hear that I somehow lightened someone else's burden is hugely valuable to me. Well, that's really, I mean, that's what this profession of being a comedian is all about in a lot of ways. I mean, is that why you feel like you wanted to be a comedian? I love, I do love the response of laughter. You know, uh, I many, 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 many years ago, I went camping with some friends and we were in separate tents and we get up in the morning and all night long, there were people like partying near us. Um, not like, not drunken reveling, not fighting, not, you know, just laughing and talking. Um, and they were right next to her, but they were up all night long. And so me and my friend come out of our separate tents in the morning. She is so aggravated that these people were up all night making noise. And I was delighted. And it was so <laughs> funny because it was it was like Goofus and Gallant, although with Goofus and Gallant, there's a judgment there. I mean, I understand her response, but I just loved falling asleep and waking up intermittently all night long, hearing people laugh. Yeah, it's hard to get mad at somebody for laughing, right? I, it's such a great response. Um, you know, so often people will talk about who they think is funny and who they don't think is funny. And I think to myself, boy, I try to think as many people as I possibly can are funny um, because it's so much fun to laugh. So how did you end up getting into comedy and, and what made you want to do it in the first place? I wanted to do it in the first place because I do really love the response of laughter. Uh, um, it's, uh, you know, it's it's good for every reason. It's good, you know, it's good socially. It's good mental health-wise. It's just plain fun. Um, uh, the first sentence of the last paragraph of the summary letter written by my kindergarten teacher in May of, I think it was either 1964 or 1965, says, I have enjoyed many of Paul's humorous comments about our activities. So it was something <laughs> that I glommed on to early. I guess um, so. To some degree, it was time and place because... I had this fantasy when I moved to Boston of being like a street performer in the Boston Common, which I had seen before. Um, and I thought, that's how I'll do it. I had no idea that, that there was any kind of, you know, they had to have any kind of permit or that there was any kind of schedule or that you had to like audition, if, if any of those things were true back then, which I think they probably were. Um, but I didn't know that. I just know that I had seen a guy doing magic or something on that Boston comment. I thought, yes, yes, I can do that. Um, but in fact, what happened was it, I never got up the nerve to do that, which is for the best. And then the comedy uh, connection, which was the, the, the brainchild of two guys in Boston um, that just started a company, um, quote unquote, producing uh, stand up comedy shows. And basically advertised for, you know, do you think you're funny kind of ads and got people, you know, got comics. Uh, I went to see one of those shows and it really had started up like a month or two before I went to see the show. I went to see one of those shows and uh, I thought, yeah, I, this is how I'll do it. So it, re it was really more time and place. Had I, I don't think I was going to be a pioneer. I don't think I was going to be somebody who went into a club and, and did what those two guys did. I don't think I was going to start that sort of uh, trend in Boston at that time. Um, but once it was already started up, I was happy to jump on the train. Were there people who served as your biggest inspirations at that time, people that you really emulated in comedy? I, I wanted to be, I mean, before I started stand-up, maybe still after, I wanted to be, you know, the people that I was inspired by growing up, were, you know, Carol Burnett and Lucille Ball and Mary Tyler Moore and... Not stand-up comedians. 
Right. I wanted to be a comic performer. Uh, Lily Tomlin, uh, Gilda Radner, you get the idea. And uh, I missed by a country mile. Um, <laughs> I, I still would like to be all those people rolled up into one, but I'm not. Uh, but this stand-up platform, um, and I wasn't really familiar with stand-up comedy very much because uh, Sudbury, the town I grew up in, was a small town. We did not have nightclubs. Um, and my parents didn't really enjoy my company enough to have me up watching The Tonight Show <laughs> with them. And those were really the only places you would have seen stand-up comedy at that time. Maybe, you know, maybe the daytime talk shows Merv and Mike, um, you know, uh, well, you're probably much younger than me, but there were these daytime talk shows back then. Mike Douglas and Merv Griffin. And they had comics here and there. Anyways, so, but you had to have a place to do it. And it was really... I did a quote-unquote professional show before I ever did an open mic night um, because that's how few comics there were working. <laughs> they needed people. Yeah. So they put me on this, you know, they, they decided to have, and this is such a, a unique take on the craft, they decided to have a woman's night. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to this day, that makes, you know, me throw up in my mouth slightly. But anyways, so that my first time really performing was... Uh, you know, but they also used to do this great thing. Did you have this experience where they would say, when they would introduce you when it was your first time on stage, they would go like, this is her first time, so let's, you know, really make her feel welcome. Right? <laughs> go you easy on her. You yeah. would be treated with such kid gloves that every comic I know has the story of how, you know, the first time on stage felt magical, and the second time they yep. got the living yep. shit kicked out of them. That's the, everyone's story. My theory is that... If it's be the comics who are successful, it's because that first time went well, and they're always chasing that moment again. So there must be, I think there are a lot of people out there who their first time didn't go well, and that was it, and they never did it again, and they never became successful. Do you think that's yeah, true? Yeah, I think it's like my first baby, I was a, I was a foster parent, I, I didn't uh, give birth, but my first baby was so totable. He, you know, <laughs> I Totable is a great word. I mean, looking back, I, I should I should probably have done something slightly differently. But I I, I really barely altered my lifestyle. Yeah. <laughs> to include that baby, I took him with me everywhere. Uh, I took him to work. I took him to. I mean, I didn't take him on the road for you know for overnight. Sometimes I did, but um, I didn't do a lot of those jobs during that period. So, but I did. I took him everywhere. I took him. I took him to parties. I took. I, I don't know. He was fun. You could hand him to somebody else, and they were they were delighted to hold him, and he was delighted to be held. He was just a totable guy. And then and then he went back to his birth mother, and I and I got another baby, and I was just like, oh my god, what the hell have I done? <laughs> she was so. I mean, she just cried all the time. She was a miserable wretch of a child. Uh, yeah, and I think. You know, like a lot of people say this that give birth as well, which is had those experiences been reversed. There may not have been a second. They would only have one child. Yeah, I, th I think it's like that for stand-up. Yeah, someone who's about to have a second child, that's a terrifying uh, proposition. Yeah, Don't, if you're about to have a second child, just forget what I just said. Your situation <laughs> will be different, I'm sure. I'm sure it's gonna it will. Be, it's going to be great. You're going to love it. So as you're as you're coming up in the in the comedy world, do you feel like... You had a, a big break moment. Was there something that happened that really transformed things for you? I feel like it has been brick by brick. And I think that's good. I think everybody, or most people, or what do I, I don't know, 
what anybody else thinks. But that fantasy, uh, especially when I was growing up and there were only a handful of national outlets for doing stand-up comedy, it was very, you know, we had three television stations and 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 two of them turned off at 10 o'clock. I mean, they didn't, it, it, TV didn't go on all night. So it was very possible for someone, a comic, to do a set on the Tonight Show and the next day, everyone be talking about it. Everyone knew who they were. Did you and, have that experience? Never. Because by the time I came along, those shows weren't that, you know, that show wasn't a kingmaker anymore. It was, you know, you might have made a duke or two, but it wasn't a kingmaker. Um, and so I really didn't. And and were there people that had, you know, they, they all, there's like show business adages about this, but, you know, how many years went into someone becoming an overnight success, right? Right, um, yeah. Yeah, if you don't have the goods to back it up, then some wonderful, well-exposed set somewhere doesn't mean anything. Um, and in fact, may ultimately be a downfall because it sets up the expectations too high. Um, so I kind of like the brick by, by brick thing. I, I don't mind it at all. Um, plus, you know, some of my favorite shows that I've ever done uh, in terms of being a stand-up have nothing to do with the grandeur of the place that I was in. It just has to do with there was a magical component of the who was in the room when 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 we had the conversation and, and, and I don't know just chemistry. Yeah, well, I think chemistry is a huge part of what you do as a stand-up comedian and I know, you know, sort of you're probably most famous for doing quote unquote crowd work, which I know is a term you don't love. Uh but yeah. But it is your it is kind of your signature thing. <laughs> I don't know when it came into the lexicon. I think it was Jimmy Pardo who first said it to me. And I said, what? And he goes, crowd work. He goes, I, I don't know. What are you talking about? Crowd work. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know when that became like a term, but okay. In terms you mean, of... In, yeah. You mean having a conversation with someone? So if I'm walking down the street and I say hi to somebody and they say hi and I say, how you doing? And they go, good. How are you? And I go, good enough. And then we were, is that street work? Did I do street work then? <laughs> was that individual? What is that? Crowd work. Yeah, I think st street worker is a different different thing. Yeah. Well, and you make more money. Um, <laughs> yeah, talk. I love the audience. It's a, you know, I used, to, I used to have a friend who was a comic years ago, and she was a very good comic. And uh, she stayed with me at one point. Um, I was going to be out of town. And so... She and her girlfriend stayed in my apartment while I was gone. But we had some nights in common where we just all, you know, where they just stayed in my apartment. And um, she would do this thing where she would go out into the living room, the empty living room, and do her act. And I, 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 when she did, I looked at her girlfriend. I'm like, what's she doing? And she said, oh, she's rehearsing. And I went, oh, my God. I never seen anything like that. Yeah, it never would have occurred to you to do that. Never. And by the way, I probably, I would have been an overnight success if I rehearsed. <laughs> I just, it just seems so weird to me. Um, I don't have a set. I certainly have jokes that I've done before. Don't get me wrong. I, I, I still do a joke that I did on my first night on stage because it's a good joke. I don't do it every night. Um, can, uh, can, you, can you share that one? It's my International House of Pancakes joke. 
This is nice. I, I feel, to be honest with you, kind of outclassed. I, uh, a lot of uh, really fun people. This has been a good time for me. I, I, I used to work at the International House of Pancakes. <laughs> Thank you. You set your goals and you go for them. It was a dream. I made it happen. It was the worst job I ever had in my entire life. And I'll tell you something, when people would be rude to me, I would touch their eggs. It's a true story. I just flip them over in the back with my hands a couple of times. They didn't know. I felt better. It worked out. I didn't want to. I had to. It was a terrible job. People complained all the time about the service. And, you know, we weren't slow. The floors were sticky. We were stuck in the back trying to get to the tables. You did that your first night on stage? Yeah. Um, because my act is largely autobiographical, and therefore, and it was a you know it was a turning point, uh, uh, um, you know it was a milestone in my life working at the IHOP, the graveyard shift in Orlando. <laughs> um, and by the way, this, the International House of Pancakes is a restaurant that we had until Trump pulled us out of it. Just uh, <laughs> anybody's listening. Um, so yeah, so I don't have I, I don't have a a set. Um, but the other thing is, if you're a musician, can you, you know, like say somebody like, I don't know, a, you know, a cigarette sug writer or, or, or Bruce Springsteen. Can Bruce Springsteen have an emotional connection with the crowd that is like, you know, almost, almost electrically measurable? Yes, absolutely. Um, but if he doesn't have that, he can sing in an empty room and still do a phenomenal, right? Because that stand-up comedy to me is not the same at all. You, ca- I don't see how you rehearse without an audience. I don't get it. <laughs> I, you know, how, how do you know when to say the next thing? Yeah, without the laugh, without, you know, the audience is sort of your partner in that yeah. performance. And they also tell me, you know, it's sort of, for me, having the audience is like bowling with gutter guards. When I have an audience in front of me and I go, somebody just wrote to me and said, where the hell was I? I had just been in some location. I can't think of what town it was in. But somebody emailed me on my my public email account and they said, uh, oh, I was just at your show in blah, 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 wherever it was. Oh, wherever it was. And she said, as you can see, there's a lot of Trump supporters there. Well, I didn't make note of there being a lot of Trump supporters there. I'm not sure that I knew that, but I can guarantee you that if I was on stage and I made a Trump joke and it didn't really seem to land, that the gutter guards went up and I went in a different direction. I, I'm sure of that. Uh, I don't remember. I don't remember drawing any conclusions about who they were politically as a crowd, but it's just very helpful to have an audience tell you, yeah, we like that. No, nah, not so much that. Um, and I, I adjust, um, you know, just the way you do in conversation with somebody, you, you know, if you're talking you to, to really, somebody, yeah. you have to really be in the moment to do that and not be relying on some script that you have, you know, in the back of your head. Precisely. And which isn't to say that I'm all that socially sensitive either. <laughs> I have said the wrong thing to, to people, both socially and on stage in the past. I'm not telling you that I'm somehow, you know that I'm hypersensitive to other people's feelings. I'm not. But there are times when I notice, hey, they seem pissed. And I go, oh, all right, 
maybe I should go in a different direction. Did it take a long time to develop that skill? I mean, whether you want to call it crowd work or, or just talking to the audience, um, did that come naturally to you to, to ask people in the audience, you know, what do you do and then make it funny? It really came. It really was more of a survival technique, I think, than anything else. When right after my first right after my first big professional set, um, I then they didn't even have open mic nights back then at the at those at the Boston location. Then they started. Then those guys got the idea. Oh, if we had an open mic night or somebody got the idea that if we had an open mic night, you know what you're doing is you're making a factory. You're making your farm leagues. You got now you're. Right now, the people that get good at the open mic nights, you own them. Basically, they funnel into your productions. And so when I started doing open mic nights, one of the, you know, the premise of an open mic night is that anybody who wants to can go up and do five minutes. Um, back then, we had the hottest crowds, um, not big rooms, small rooms, but packed and packed with people that were really excited to be there. And a lot of the people loved the idea that they were getting in on the on the ground floor of some, you know, of performers. So, um, and as the night wore on, the, the, the audience dwindled down. Um, so as the comics are waiting to go on, or the up-and-coming comics are waiting to go on, um, they're watching that crowd uh, um, peel off a little bit at a time after every comic right hits the stage and and now it's not peak hours anymore now it's you know 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock and like some more people leave well everybody is just chomping at the bit to get on and so if you go over your five minutes all the comics in the room are pissed <laughs> so i would time out my set to do a five minute set in the beginning and i would memorize what I planned on saying. But from the very start, what would happen is I stepped on stage. One of two things would happen. Either I commented on something I had just seen, which was not a part of my original five-minute plan, and now I'm thrown off because I don't know how long I've been <laughs> on stage. Right. Or I would simply get nervous and forget what I meant to say. And I was either way, now, it was sort of like Trump being in the White House. It was like, okay, if he's president, he can't be prosecuted. So once I went overtime, or once I knew I was going to go overtime, or I had the potential, because I had no idea where I was in my five minutes, and I may have already gone over, I didn't know. So now what I would do is hide on stage. If I could just stay on stage, <laughs> then the others couldn't get to me. And so... so I so I was for and I only had five minutes of material, so I was forced to talk to audience members, or 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 by that time I'd forgotten what I was going to say anyway. So I was forced to go, you sir, blah blah blah, whatever. And in the beginning, I felt like it was this, um, it was this horrible thing. It was it was like a bad trait that I had, is that I couldn't stay focused on what I was doing. I couldn't remember. I could, and I forget. I'd been at it for a while. I don't know how many sets. Uh, I don't know, had it been a year, less than a year, um, when I realized that, because I used to take notes after every set, but when I realized that the heart of what I was doing, the real joy of any set that I did, was the were those unexpected parts, the parts that I didn't mean to do. Um, and so now, uh, since I finally came to that discovery, I just sort of allow for it, y y you know? Um, I, I just sort of, uh, 
you know, it's like how you, it's like when you give your dog a toy. You can't force them to play with it, but you can just leave it there. And so I would just leave dog toys around for myself mentally. And it just became my favorite part of the night. Coming up, Paula looks back on her all-time greatest bit of crowd work about that woman whose mother ripped her face open on a lube rack and later opens up about the 2001 arrest that nearly ended her comedy career. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to our episodes with other stand-up comedy legends like Jim Gaffigan, Sarah Silverman, Louis Black, and more, along with everything else from our free archive. And you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Paula Poundstone. Well, your 1990s special... Cats, cops, and stuff. I think um, is the the sort of ideal example of this. It's still among the all time great stand up specials I've ever seen. Did you feel when that was happening how special it was? When we went to make that HBO show, and I don't even remember what year it was. It was ninety somewhere. Yeah, nineteen ninety is when it came out. Yeah. So I was with this management firm at the time that had a relationship with HBO, and they they come to me and they say. HBO, you know, HBO wants to give you an hour special. I'm like, that's fantastic. That's very exciting. Great. And then as we start talking about it, they say, well, they don't want you to talk to the audience. I'm literally told that. Like, yeah, they want it to be all, you know, they want you to talk to the audience. And I and I actually said, I, and I have to give my younger self credit for this. I actually said, then why are they hiring me? Um, you know, because Hollywood has a long history, a long history of we're going to hire this person and we're going to ask them not to do what they do. <laughs> uh, you, you know, we're going to. Uh, so I was just like, well, that doesn't sound like a good idea. So I'm not usually one who argues a lot. It's, and especially back then, I, I you know, I, I barely had an opinion of my own. But I said, uh, I said, yeah, I really want to be able to. I really want to. And they said, oh, no. Well, the reason you can't is we can't hear the audience when they talk. Now, you have to keep in mind, this is a long time ago, and so the technology has changed because, you know, the people in the audience weren't all mic'd. And, um, and it's not just a matter of the other people in the room hearing them. 
It's a matter of the television audience hearing them. So I went to the mat on it and I said, no, 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 I really want, uh, you know, I, I, it doesn't make sense for me to do this if I can't do what I do. So they hung microphones from the ceiling all over this room. And of course, that's a budgetary, you know, thing. Um, but I, it would be cheaper and easier to do it now than it was then. But they did. They hung microphones from the ceiling all over the room. And the other thing is they had a guy with a boom mic. And the only rehearsal that I did was I would go on stage to, on the like the day before that we shot or the day of shooting. I can't remember. And we had production assistants sitting in various chairs in the room. And I would pretend that I was, you know, I'd go, you, sir. And the guy with the boom mic would haul ass over to that person to make sure that if I gave the, you know, that they would have enough time to get over there. And I would wait before I specifically started, you know, I would indicate who I was going to talk to, but not begin getting them talk till the Till the boom mic got over there. <laughs> yeah, and, you really uh, have to be aware of what's going on for that. I mean, that's, uh, that yeah, sounds hard. It, it was. And apparently, I mean, I'm assuming from the response of the HBO people and my management at the time, it really hadn't been done that way before. So, all right. So we have, we've gone, we've done all this prep and, you know, expense in order to allow me to have my way and do this thing that I really enjoy doing. So. I go on stage on the night of the show. Show starts up. I think the way it unfolded was somebody, I don't know what I was talking about, but somebody made some sort of a response to something that I had said or something. And I turned in that direction and I said, you know, you, sir, you know, blah, 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 whatever I said. The boom guy gets over there. And I said, well, you know, well, well, well what do you do for a living, sir? And he says, he's, he's an attorney. And <laughs> a lady further to my left goes like, ah, and everybody sort of turned. Yeah. And the, uh, I, so now, I think I forgot about the boom guy entirely now. Now I turn to that lady and I go, what, do you, why are, what is it about lawyers that you don't like? And she begins to tell, well, no, she, did, she, she was cagey. She wasn't going to say. And I pushed her and pushed her. Thank That's God what you it was. did. I said, I said, I don't know, uh, why are you, well, we had a lawyer for something. Well, why would you have a lawyer? What is who was, well, you know, there was a thing. And I, and I pushed her and pushed her. She didn't want to say it. And eventually <laughs> she blurts out that her mother fell in a, um, it's car, in a service garage, right? In a, in a car garage and ripped her face off on a Lubrack. <laughs> and when I heard those words, all I could think of, my response, I don't think anybody really, my response was totally based on the fact that I had made HBO give me, you know, make it so <laughs> that I could do this. And now I have uncovered a story. It's very possible the show will never recover from because it is not a comedic story. It is a tragic, <laughs> sad awful story. She didn't say my mother got injured. She said my, my mother ripped her face off on a Lubrack. And I'm picturing the HBO people sitting out in the in the truck where they have the screens of the different camera angles. And the director says, you know, use this camera, use that camera. I am picturing these people being so pissed at me. <laughs> and, and, and so my response was just... And, and somehow... <laughs> There's something about, again, that chemistry, that magic that I am not in control of, that I couldn't repeat, I couldn't set up again, I couldn't make it happen 
if I, you know, with all the, you know, genius engineers in the world, there was something about my response and what that woman said that just struck us all as so funny in that moment. Incredible. People come up to me all the time and say, are you going to do the Lubrac thing tonight? (laughs) And I go, I I don't think so. (laughs) No. I don't, don't, yeah, I'm not sure that would work, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, because if I, because that's the other thing is people sometimes come up to me after shows and wonder if the people that I talked to were some sort of a setup. So I think some people had this idea because that ended up being such a funny and odd pillar of the show. I think people have the idea that it was pre-planned. And I, I always say to people, that will require several things for that to have been set up. And probably the most off-putting to me is the E-word, effort. No, it was not set up. What happened? She was in a gas station. What happened? She chipped and fell over a jack handle and it tore her face open on a lube rack. <laughs> <laughs> Tore her face open on a lube rack? She's had two plastic surgeries and it's not fixed. Ma'am, bum everybody out. I can't believe you're telling a story like that. Well, you could have just lied. Jesus. I don't even feel like being here anymore. Tore her face open on a lube rack. Say she was in the bathroom and she was using that towel that turns around and just sprained a wrist or something. Tore her face open on a lube rack. If my mother tore her face open on a lube rack, I sure as hell wouldn't go telling it to people. Don't they have a sign right there at the gas station, ma'am, right there that says that you're not allowed to be beyond a certain line when on account of the insurance? No, that's why we're suing them. That's why you're suing them? Because they didn't have that? Yeah. Your mom put her face real close to a lubra? <laughs> Ma'am, I don't think you have a leg to stand on. Where's the lawyer? You ever have one of these lubra things happen? I'm sure it's not your favorite thing to talk about, but I do want to just touch on, you know, what was obviously the the low moment of your career, which was when you were arrested in in 2001 um, for what they called child endangerment. Um, And you've really, you know, sort of managed to come back after that. And I wanted to just ask, you know, did you consider, you know, quitting comedy at that time? Was it hard to to keep going after that? Um, Yeah. Was it hard to keep going? Yeah. Um, And did I consider quitting? I guess so. I mean, I don't think I thought, well, I'll quit. I think I thought, well, I won't, you know, I might not be able to do it anymore. Yeah, they might um, not let you do it anymore. Right, exactly. Um, and uh, I'm still not in charge of that. I'm not in charge of who comes out to see me. You know, all I can do is get up every day and and and, and try to do better. You, you can't, you really, you know, it's not like I can reel back time. And clearly, if I could, I would, I would, I would do things differently. Yeah. Um, you know, there's that. This happened so long before this conversation about cancel culture and people, you know, getting second chances or not. And I'm curious if your own experience makes you think any differently about those issues and whether people who do things that are not great, um, you know, deserve a, a second chance to to come back to redeem themselves and to you know to move on. Um, yeah, I think everybody deserves a second chance. Um, and it's not that hard to give it to them. Yeah. A second chance at what? It's it's a good question. What does that mean to you? You know, there are times where I feel like there are people that are 
doing things that sort of bring us all down. And if they use that quote unquote second chance to continue that trajectory, well, that's a big problem, you know? So, well, I, I think you certainly did get a, a second chance and you've managed to, you know, continue, you know, having a really successful comedy career in a lot of ways. How did you want to use that second chance? What did you want to, you know, what did you want to do with it? This is going to sound really stupid and sappy, but a long time ago, uh, when really in the midst of, you know, uh, feeling, you know, guilt and shame and sadness and wishing I never drank. And I realized, you know, I had children to raise and getting up every day and wallowing in those feelings wasn't going to get the job done. And so it's not that I, it's not that my head and my heart don't go in that direction occasionally, but I said to myself in a very conscious way, I need to get up every day and try to make the world better, both for my children and, uh, and for the whole in some way. And so every time I find myself drifting into, you know, that other sort of thought process, that's what I replace it with. And so far, I think in the main, I'm not, I'm not talking about astronomical changes. I'm not talking about that I, you know, that I've, that I've healed the sick and, <laughs> and lifted the dead from, I, <laughs> I'm just talking about whatever little way, uh, big ways would be good too, uh, but whatever little way I can that I make a very conscious effort to do that. And, you know, I think for the most part, I've managed to do that. And, uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, I think that's I think that's so admirable because you see a lot of cases where people, you know, have these things happen and then they kind of dig in the other way and they say, you know, okay, you don't, you know, you don't want me, I'm going to double down on sort of, as you said, sort of, you know, continuing that behavior. But, you know, to see that you've, you know, really, you know, are still out there, uh, you know, touring big theaters as a stand-up and, and making people laugh. Um, you know, I, I think that's a wonderful thing. Well, and life in general, it, 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 in case anybody that is listening is on the fence about, um, you know, quitting the devil drink, I'm, I'm not the first to say it, um, but life in general is it, so much easier. So there's so many myths about alcohol there's so many songs so many you know so many movies so many ideas it's so about, romanticized yes about what it does for you and the answer is it does nothing it makes everything worse if if you have a problem today and you decide that you're going to say you know drink over the problem i can guarantee you that that problem is going to be so much larger by the time you put that drink down um and and by the way i also had a mentality about drinking good back then which is that you know Boy, it's a boy, it's a great day, right? So what what a happy occasion. I should have a drink. Or, oh my gosh, I'm depressed. I should have a drink. Or, you know, I I I don't really feel anything today. I should have so you know, when you're finding that when you're finding that the answer to everything is I should have a drink, you're probably in fairly dangerous territory. Yeah. Did it change when you stopped drinking, you know, what effect did it have on your um on your ability to do comedy, did it change anything for you? Um, oh, I'm much on better. stage. I'm much better, much better. Uh, yeah, much better. I I had a fear at one point that I was a better ping pong player drunk, but looking <laughs> back, I don't think that's true. 
So what I want to do now is our segment called the first laugh. So we're going to, we're going to end with this and it's a, a few questions about some firsts in your life and career. Um, and going all the way back to childhood, do you remember the first piece of comedy that made you laugh really hard as a kid or one of the first? No, I, I, I don't remember specifically the first. I can say that um, I was the youngest in my family and my mother used to get the other kids off to school before I was school aged. She would get them off to school and then she would go back to bed. And I was left to just sort of function. And, you know, one of the things I gravitated to, of course, was the television in the basement, so, you know, black and white TV, because um, that's what there was. And uh, the three channels and morning television has always been awful, um, but it was particularly awful back then. And I did I was really not, you know, Sesame Street hadn't even been invented yet. And um, the the children's shows were Captain Kangaroo and Romper Room. And, you know, there were elements of Captain Kangaroo that I liked. But in the main, I felt that both shows really talked down to me. And I didn't <laughs> like that. Even then. Um, yeah. And then there was a horrible show called the Virginia Graham Girl Talk Show. Uh, just awful. Um, <laughs> but uh, there were reruns of I Love Lucy. And there also was, and I don't know who they thought was watching this, but uh, the Three Stooges. And so I've always told people that I was babysat by I Love Lucy and the Three Stooges. And uh, to this day, uh, I, I'm a big Stooge fan. And, uh, I, you know, and those I Love Lucy episodes, you know, I have them on DVD and video. And when my kids were growing up, I, I showed them if my middle daughter were to come visit me tonight and we were going to watch something together, I can guarantee you she would reach for an I Love Lucy uh, they, they're, they're timeless and great and funny is funny. Do you remember the first time that you knew that you were funny, that you could make other people laugh? I, I, I think pretty early on, I can remember an old neighbor, Agnes Garrity. Uh, and by the way, her, her husband, Bill, used to call her Ag. Uh, <laughs> Ag. Um, very attractive. Ag. <laughs> Uh, I remember uh, uh, our old neighbor, Agnes Garrity, telling me that uh, I was a comedian. I didn't even know what the word meant at that time. I mean, and, and really, comedian was a lot of syllables for a little kid. Uh, but also, of course, my uh, my kindergarten teacher, who I, I believe I referred to earlier. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, we talked about, you know, being on uh, Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and all that. I believe your late night debut was before that on Letterman. Um, yes. What do you remember about that very first time you performed stand-up on, on late night TV? Uh, I remember that I met Jamie Lee Curtis in the back because Adam Ant was on. And I believe they used to go out. And she was very nice to me. I, I don't really remember the set. You know, it was so... Even now, if I was to do like something like that, I would certainly feel nervous. But back then, I think because... But now... But now my feelings would be tempered because I know that unless something absolutely catastrophic happens, it's not going to change anything one way or the other. It's not going to make me, a, you know, an overnight star. It's not going to make me end my career. Did you feel that pressure? Back then you did. In fact, I, I would still have to coach myself now in current times. I would still have to coach myself to remind myself that nothing particularly eventful is going to happen as a result of this. But back then, 
I think I really thought, you know, this, this is it. This is it. I'm going to, you know, you know, jump off this cliff and I'm either going to fly or I'm going to fall. And uh, and that both things were possible. Do you remember with, with Johnny Carson, where you there's the famous thing where people would see if he would call you over to the couch? Do you remember looking for Which that? Which is such bullshit, such crap, by the way. Um, what an awful system <laughs> to have to have performers have to feel that would be like if you had. OK, if you had a bunch of people over for a party, um, but there was a table. And some of the people were going to be invited to the table to sit down and have a dinner party, right? And the other people just, you know, they could be in the room, but they weren't going to be a part of the dinner. I mean, it's a horrible idea, a horrible idea. And they didn't do it with the other performers. You know, in the old days, The Tonight Show was a longer show. And one of the things that everybody always joked about was in the last segment, they'd have on a writer. Um, and oftentimes, by the way, a really great guest or, you know, a terrific book, whatever. I, I think it was probably a good idea to have writers on. But, you know, it wasn't as showy as the other segments. So it would be like the last, uh, you know, uh, they never said, you know, they never had the writer come out and read a few pages from his book and then go, OK, now nah, that was good. So you <laughs> yeah. can come over to the couch. I mean, it was just a bullshit system. Um, and there were guys that worked it, too. You know, there's a famous story of a Boston comic that purposely went long so that they didn't have time for the last segment with the other guest so that he got invited they, they over. They had no choice, to, yeah. Yeah, yeah, which, you know, same thing. Like, why why should anybody even be thinking in that <laughs> way? It's a stupid idea. So, yes, um, it was a big deal back then to not just do stand-up on The Tonight Show, but to get invited over to sit with Johnny at the desk. Um, generally speaking, that did not happen on someone's first appearance. Um, and, and there was never any surprises. I think Steve Wright, I think, uh, did such a spectacular and he was so unique and so wonderful that I, after his first uh, set ever on The Tonight Show, Johnny waved him over and he came and he <laughs> sat down. And it was and it was terrific and wonderful. Uh, I did not have that experience. Um, and I think I'd done this show like, I don't know, three times maybe before I've you know, finally get to walk over and sit with Johnny. Um, <laughs> and, you know, sitting with Johnny wasn't necessarily the big thrill that you might think. No? <laughs> well, you know, he was, I, 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 you know, if you were Dick Van Patten, who I think was his neighbor and a friend of his and a contemporary, then, you know, during the break, they probably chatted, right? There was probably a genuine affection for one another. But, you know, by the time somebody like me was there, um, y y you know, it was a job job for Johnny, I think. And he didn't talk to anybody during the break. You know, just, well, you know, the band was playing. And he, you know, he might have whispered something to a producer or something. You know, a sip of water out of his Johnny cup. You know, yeah. And you're just around. sitting there awkwardly. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, yeah, it wasn't the big thrill. That you there was one great moment where. I guess this was on my first Tonight Show. Same thing, you know, like your your, you know, your heart's going a thousand miles a minute because you have this idea that something revolutionary is going to take place within your career because of whatever takes place on that stage, which is not true. But uh, it, you know, it was very hard for me to convince myself that it wasn't true. So I go on, I do my set, and it was fine. It wasn't wasn't great. It wasn't awful. It's fine. 
I'm not really good at five minutes, by the way, and not being able to talk to the audience, but it was fine. Here's a young stand-up comedian who's uh, been on several times with David Letterman, and she's uh, very popular in comedy clubs across the country, and she can be uh, seen frequently here in Hollywood at the Improvisation. Would you welcome Paula Poundstone? Paula? Hi, how are you? Hey. Uh, you know what? I'm really happy. This is so exciting. I don't, I, I don't think I ever thought that I would be this happy. Like when I was little, you know, my mom used to just tense up over absolutely everything. One time I knocked a Flintstones glass off the kitchen table and she said, well, damn it, we can't have nice things. <laughs> my parents got kind of carried away with the letter P when they were naming the kids in our family. There's me, Paula, and then there's Peggy and Patty and my brother, Jimmy, spelled with a silent P. <laughs> and of course, my youngest sister, Pinata was actually beaten to death by a gang of festive Mexicans. And by the way, the, the Tonight Show, you know, I remember growing up in that colorful curtain and the band, and it was also show busy, and it was also light. The set of the Tonight Show was dusty. <laughs> you know, it was, you know, the backstage was about as colorless as it could be. Yeah, it kind of bursts your bubble of of what you of your expectations. Oh, yeah, the 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 dressing rooms were like you know the Holiday Inn is more exciting than the dressing rooms at the Tonight Show. It was just colorless, and when you think about it, well, why not? Nobody's using it for more than a few minutes, um, you know. So whatever. So I go on. I do my set. I come off. I'm packing up my stuff to leave because I did change clothes while I was there. Um, so I'm packing up my stuff to leave and I'm not watching, I'm not watching the rest of the show, whereas I had watched before it went on. They had on that night ZZ Top. So, uh, they used to do this thing back then where they, when they came back from a break after commercial, they would somehow, they would sometimes, excuse me, have Johnny dressed up like someone. And like I remember, he had, they had Michael Jackson on one night. And he came back dressed up like Michael Jackson with like you know, epith, whatever the yeah epaulets on his yeah. shoulders. Right. So all right. So I'm done packing up. I've paid no attention to what's going on on the actual show at this point. I'm just coming out of the dressing room to leave. And all of a sudden, these guys, the um, ZZ Top's roadies are pushing equipment past me. So I'm sort of blocked from walking down the hall. And this, you know, you know how they had the beards and the sunglasses and the, and the hats. And so, you know, one of them comes up to me. He says, uh, as we're standing there, I can't, I can't move because the road is... And he goes, uh, hey, good set. And I said, uh, oh, thanks. And now I'm totally embarrassed because I hadn't watched them. And so I wanted to be able to say... You know, you, but I just thought, well, I'll just bullshit. So I go, you too. And, and he, and he kind of turned his head and he looked at me kind of funny. And then he takes his hat off <laughs> and he's, I can't remember, he took the glasses off and I still have no fucking idea. Um, and he's like pulling at his beard and he, now he's trying to get the mustache off. And now he gets cranky because he can't get it all off. He says to somebody, <laughs> you know, come help me with this. And, and he said to me somewhere along the way while he's disrobing, he says, no, no, it's me. And it was Carson. And I had zero idea. That's no, because I, I hadn't seen them come back from the commercial with him dressed. I had no idea. 
he's short, by the way, he's very short. And uh, yeah, and I, you know, I remember that there was someone there taking pictures and I, I wish somebody would come up with those pictures because the look on both of our faces must have been so great because Carson was really worried that I didn't know who he was. <laughs> you know, it was like his identity had been stripped from him. I wonder if he ever even dressed up again after that. I'm impressed you but, got invited back after that. Yeah, well, I'd seen the seedy underside of the whole thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, he was like in a panic. No, no, it's me. Paula, I'm so glad that we got to do this. I've been a fan of yours for really so long, and, and this was just such a pleasure to talk with you, and um, congrats on, on everything, and, and good luck. Well, thanks so much. It was fun talking with you. Wow. Seriously, thanks so much to Paula Poundstone for being my guest on this week's show. You can listen to her podcast called Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone wherever you're listening to this podcast. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at LastLaughPod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next week on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.